Hi, Julian. We're talking about uh, the Four Noble Truths, and we had started with the second, uh, the cause of suffering. And in fact, the second Noble Truth, when we fully understand this, the second Noble Truth of how it's caused, and we look at these constituent components, we begin to see the profound nature of dukkha in the way that it is um, using words like discomfort. Yeah. That drives the life of every human being all day long. Yeah. It literally drives our life on a continuous basis. We very rarely have free will because most of our will is, is spent escaping the reality of our unsatisfactory feelings about the way things are, okay? And that that's trained behavior. We were trained into that, that quite naturally, in fact, we've got dogs here that are not in suffering nearly as much as most of the people. And they haven't, they don't know about the Four Noble Truths. They just weren't trained into being miserable. But if you lock a dog in a cage, that dog's going to be uncomfortable and miserable all the time, just like a lion in the circus cage, just, you know, constantly stirred up, can't get out. Where right. the dogs here are just relaxed. Okay. So, basically, this learned behavior that we have, we learned it from adults when we were children. The children can be quite joyous all by themselves, and the, and the adults come in, unless the adults have some training. When the adults come in, they start ordering the kids around. They want to know what they're into. The parents say they love the child so much that they literally become what's called a helicopter mom, right? But that's not real love because love has a whole lot to do if you, let us say that there's many different qualities of love to the point that it needs correct definitions every time it's being used. Because okay. when, when the mom loves the child, uh, they will sit down and nourish the child and find out what the child is doing and become interested. Most of them love the child by asking, have they done their homework yet? And other things. Okay. Uh, so the idea then, the job of the parent is to get the kid to do the right thing so that they fit into society. Because if they don't fit into society, they'll be miserable or something. And so we as children grow up following that model of going along to get along, to do what we're supposed to do. And we lose our ability to play, to be playful, to be easygoing, uh, uh, to enjoy ourselves. And so we sort of get out of the habit of being joyful. Which means then that most of our behavior is um, predicated upon going around to avoid all of this mess that we've made of our lives, rather than cleaning it up.
So um, it's really important to understand the nature of suffering and what, what it comes to so that you can begin to say, darn, this stuff has been there all the time and I haven't looked at it, I haven't really seen it. And so uh, this actually takes an investigation. Now, here's something that I have actually heard from a guy which I would normally have great respect for. He's actually a college professor. He teaches mathematics and he's into Buddhism very deeply. Very deeply enough to to uh, travel 800 miles to go to an ordination of a wrong that he didn't even know, but he knew about the ordination. He had the invitation. Okay, so that's when I met him um, there. Uh, I don't even remember his last name, but his first name was Howard. And he had um, a deep belief in rebirth. And his statement was that, oh, I can see the suffering of the samsara of life after life of drudgery. And so that's why I want to practice Buddhism is because I can see the suffering over many, many lifetimes. But this life is kind of okay, and therefore there's no real reason to work hard at it. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, what he's doing is he's misunderstanding the concept that dukkha is something that we experience right now, and it does drive our lives. Even though he's got a comfortable life, he's a college professor, a very good at it at a, a, a well-established university, etc., like that. And so he thinks he's got it kind of made, but he doesn't realize that he gets up in the morning, he drives to work and all of that with um, intentions and anxieties and fears and all of that other stuff that everyone else has who are not paying attention to it. He literally is standing in the road and thinking that, that, uh, that I can get away with that Mack truck running over me that I'll survive somehow because it's really not that much suffering. Okay. That, and many people will say that, which indicates that they don't have a profound yet enough understanding of dukkha. That when you're understanding of dukkha and the way that we manufacture it, when we understand that it drives our life, then we really do kind of in a desperate way want out of it. If that desperation to get out of it can be converted into enthusiasm for getting out of it, then we can be successful. I like that. Okay. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. It resonates with what I've experienced. It, it really does feel like, like the, the term like waking up is really apt because it, it feels like that when you come out of Zuka, you're just like, oh, like, what oh, was I even God. doing for the <laughs> exactly. last hour? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if this is, does that still happen to like, to very pra like seasoned practitioners like yourself? Do you still have moments where you're just like, kind of get lost in Duka and then you're like, you know, that might go on for, I assume maybe the interval goes down over time or something. Like for me, I can have like a whole day 
spent it in, and I don't even realize until at night when I'm like, wait a second, what did I just do all day? Like, Okay, this is what brings in then the unremitting quality. And that unremitting is the concept of sati, because if we have our practice well developed, then the practice will go according to plan every time it starts up. In other words, when it starts up, we investigate the mind, we see that this, what I'm thinking about is not worth thinking about. Let me throw that out and have a deep breath and relax and everything is good and there's nothing to do and no place to go and I don't even have any reason to have thought about what I was thinking about to go. That whole sequence of events we develop as a habit which basically is the practice of Anapanasati, touching on step nine and step 10 and step one and step two and step three and step four and step five and step six and step seven and step eight, uh, but not necessarily in that order. And in fact, I don't even talk much about step seven uh, and calling it step seven of Anapanasati, which is actually to make sure or to maintain that the, the thoughts are wholesome. Okay. Uh, okay. And then step eight is the, the full understanding of how thoughts and feelings interoperate with each other, that they're conditioning each other. Thoughts and feelings? Thoughts and feelings. They okay. work together. It's, ha it's very difficult to have happy thoughts and uh, angry feelings at the same time. You said without that was, those feelings being affected. That was step seven, you said? Sorry? No, step seven is, the, is um, invest, keep watching to keep the, the thoughts wholesome. I see. All right. To keep looking at the, this Vedana, to keep looking at the feelings. That in fact, what we're doing is, is that we're generating, we're bringing up the skill of Pitti and Sukha, and then step seven um, is to maintain that. Okay. To maintain that pity and sukha. And then step eight is when, uh, when we begin to see how deeply connected. But anyway, getting back to the point about Anapanasati being kicked off. That brings us into a happy state. It needs to be kicked off. And that's where sati starts. So if we have unremitting mindfulness, then it follows that we're going to immediately have and over the long term develop the skill of um, unremitting investigation. That when, we, when sati comes, when we wake up, we look at what's going on. We literally come into the senses and experience the reality of the here now, and also we investigate the mind. In fact, state, uh, uh, step number nine could be said to be the very first thing, which is that sati and investigation, to wake up and to look at what the mind is doing. Okay. Okay. And in the Satipatthana Sutta, it goes into the deeper explanation of that that investigation then 
is the investigation of what's the state of mind. Is it bright? Is it sharp? Is it fit for work? Um, what's the condition of it? Um, uh, is it stable or is it uh, uh, restless? That that kind of thing to actually um, to watch and experience the mind, which is also at the same point of is it got wholesome thoughts in it or not? And we could say that that is the question. Then that could be the uh, the fourth tetrad or the Dhamma is are these you know uh, am, am I letting wholesome thoughts arise and pass away and then be uh, un, um, to let go of them or am I going to have unwholesome thoughts arising and passing away that I do cling to so everything is about sati that's the point we have to bring up sati which means that's the skill that needs to be developed and so we need to start taking on the development of that skill of sati to wake up because it's only when we wake up that we can see the dukkha. And the more the dukkha that we see, the, the more glad we are that we're not in it right now. That we, we become gladdened and, and happy that, well, I'm glad I don't have to have those kind of thoughts. Okay. And so, um, have we talked about, I don't think we have, about the hindrances we in have, the sense yes. of uh, um, being out of debt, being out of jail? I think we have, yeah. Okay. So when we recognize that coming out of the hindrance is, in fact, like uh, coming out of a long journey because the mind has been wandering all over the place, never resting, never coming to satisfaction, never reaching home, and always carrying the burden of whatever it is that we're worried about. And then we can wake up. We can say, hey, wait a minute. There, there's an oasis right here. Why should I be wandering around in the desert of the mind when I can sit here and, and be happy and cool instead? And so this is the, the way that we look at it. Or why should I be in the prison of the mind, of that restless mind, spinning and spinning and spinning, when I can be free from that? I can get out of jail. Or, generally, what, what we have is, um, when we uh, have thoughts, that means that we owe someone something. That we haven't completed our job yet. That there's still more work to do. Uh, well... Uh, when we wake up to Anapanasati, we can throw that thought out as if we just paid that debt. I don't have to think about that right now. I don't owe anybody anything. And I can be happy and content right now. So this is the way that we begin to practice. And as we do, we it, it works together like this in the sense that the more often we wake up, and the deeper we can see when we do wake up upon an investigation, then the clearer we understand and see dukkha. And the more we understand it, and we also understand that I've got a tool now to come right out of it. So we become uh, greatly appreciative of the Dhamma that we do not only have it, but in fact, the deeper into the Dhamma that we go, the more we see 
dukkha as something to be avoided in this moment. And it is worth the effort to take to get out of it. I almost say at all costs, except that there's no cost. We just wake up and come out of it. When we think of it as uh, we got to get out of suffering at all costs, well, what's the cost? That sounds like dukkha. <laughs> so basically, we should say uh, that once we wake up and see the dukkha, we come out of it at no cost. <laughs> Because it, there's no cause to it. It's a matter of just dropping it or setting it down. But in fact, there is a tiny little cost that we can talk about. But it's certainly not Duke, uh, getting rid of Duke at all costs. But there is a tiny little cost, and that is the right effort that's put in to come out of it. But as we gain skill, as you've noticed, it's easier to come out of it because we're developing right uh, um, effort as a skill. And when we understand it as a skill that's in development, that uh, it actually becomes energetic. But in the beginning, it's a lot of work. Here's an example of that. The, uh, the 90 pound weakling or the uh, guy who goes into the gym the first time, he picks up a uh, five kilo dumbbell and it's heavy. Okay, that's what, 12 pounds, I think, something like that. So it's heavy when he picks that thing up. But fast forward three to five years after he'd been in the gym for weeks, you go in and interview him while he's uh, sitting there with that same five-pound dumbbell in his right hand, and he has a complete conversation with you while he's pulling that thing up. No effort at all now. No effort at all. Now he's got the energy to do it. Okay? This is how we begin to look at one's right effort. But if you think about it like that, then this individual rep, is also a moment of sati to remember. All he has to do is remember that he's doing that and it almost becomes automatic. But in the beginning, we have to remember, pull it up, to pull it up and then it goes down and then we pull it up again and then it goes down and then we pull it up again and there it takes effort and, um, and that. But later, it becomes quite energetic. But... The important point is he has to remember to pick up that dumbbell. He's got to remember to start this thing off. So this is the way that we have to look at Santi is, is that Santi is that kick that's going to get everything started that will then take us out of suffering. But the long-term uh, view or not view, but uh, attitude is, is that we can, in fact, come out of that stuff because we see it as dukkha. That, in fact, now's the time to put back at the English language uh, word that we started off with in the beginning, and that is suffering. When we actually see dukkha as not just unsatisfactory, but anything that's unsatisfactory is a kind of suffering. And so, um, because of that, and to see the deep nature of dukkha, 
is an important quality of the Eightfold Noble Path that we really cannot practice until we see Dukkha. But the more we practice, the more we see of it, and the more um, energetic and um, enthusiastic we get into avoiding it. All right. When that enthusiasm gets really, really strong to where our primary intention with each moment is at least let's be free from suffering, then this is what we mean by entering the stream. Then I know that they talk about it in the suttas about that there are the first three fetters, but those first three fetters are all done at the third stage of Sotapan and the seventh stage of Sotapan, or actually the sixth one, is this uh, inner, uh, this um, eagerness at every moment, moment by moment, to be eager to watch what's going on, to be eager to see what's happening. When we become eager for the Dhamma, to hear the Dhamma, to listen to it to ourselves, to talk to ourselves about the Dhamma, etc., like that, because the Dhamma is quite wholesome. If you're thinking about the Dhamma, you're having very wholesome thoughts. And so we become eager to have the mind in that wholesome state. And so this is actually what we mean by the stream entry, is when one has the full fruit. Now we can also thought, think, think about it in the sense that there is both the path and the fruit of the noble uh, state of, of Sotapan. The path itself is the path of Anapanasati, the path of Eightfold Noble Path. And when we come to the point of complete freedom from doubt about this is the right path for me in my life, that, that's the third of the three lower fetters. Okay. Uh, so we can say, basically, the three statements or the first three fetters is... Um, number one, to wake up to personality view. The way that I live my life now is unsatisfactory and must be changed. That's the best, the best way to talk about it. Uh, though we talk about it in the sense of getting over the idea that, oh, I'm okay now, at least for the long haul. It's only after the next three or five hundred lifetimes that I'll get interested in the Dhamma. I know it's there but I'm not suffering enough, okay? And so that first letter is just the opposite of that, is I've got to get out of this stuff. Um, and so uh, basically what that means is, is we, that we have to get out of the, re uh, the religion or to get out of the magical thinking. We recognize that people have been believing in rebirth for centuries and it's done no one any good because, it, if anything, it merely postpones our ability to see uh, dukkha for what it really is so that we can actually get out of it. So that's the first one. The second fetter uh, is all about the world, Sila Bhatta Paramasa. Uh, we can see that that's wrapped up in our socialism or our society, it's our, uh, the way that society works. And we also have to come to the conclusion that that society and nothing in it is going to be able to help me. That I've got to give up on following the rules in order to get a reward. 
but I've got to come inside and do the work on the inside. And so then the third fetter is the fetter of the eradication of doubt about what is the path and what is not the path. But along the way, we have to pick up uh, several things about that. One is that point about the world's not going to help me. No daddy, no mommy, nothing out there, including a God or a Jesus or an offering plate, a psychologist, a medical doctor, no one, not even a guru or a meditation teacher is going to get you out of your own crap. That's a major, major question that we have to understand, that we have to, in fact, rewrite our rule book. But that's a really easy to do once we erase or throw out the old rule book. And you know the old rule book is pretty heavy, pretty hefty. In fact, they say, I've heard, that just the IRS regulations run 80,000 pages. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so how big is your own personal rule book, right? The answer is we don't care because out it goes. We're going to rewrite the rules. And what is the re- rewriting of the rules? This four noble truths, the very Duca Duca Naroda. That's going to be the new rule book. And that's all we need is dukkha and coming out of dukkha and the Eightfold Noble Path to see it, to come out of it, to recognize that we're out of it and appreciate how we got out of it. That's the Four Noble Truths. So in the beginning, it starts out as a concept. Then it becomes intuitively obvious as we're practicing. And later, it's the only thing that's left. (laughs) And so these are the three fetters. When there's nothing left but this is it, the Eightfold Noble Path and the Four Noble Truths is the way to go and nothing else will work. That's when we step in from the step of uh, the fruit, excuse me, the path of Sotapan into the actual fruit. We've got it now. We fully recognize I've got to get out of this dukkha. Let me do that energetically and happily. If I do it from the sense of, oh, I've got to get out of it, well, that's just more of it. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was doing before, like, you know, months ago or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I very much appreciate that Achan um, Sumedho has made a point of these um, three levels of understanding the Four Noble Truths because it's at this deep level of understanding that actually means when you've got that, you are at the state of Sotapan. Mm-hmm. That's really getting the Four Noble Truths. You've got it. You've got it so strongly and so uh, uh, profoundly that there's really nothing else of much value anymore. And also your average, uh, let us say, knowledgeable individual. A good friend of mine, uh, Achan Damavitu, been a, he's English, been a monk for about 27 years now. He came to watch someone milk literally the year that Bhikkhu Buddhadasa died, and he's been there ever since. And he and I have talked about it in the sense of that the Dhamma, actually, the whole Dhamma, is very small. It's not very big. 
It's just one thing. And he and I will go on and on about that. This is, I mean, it's just, this is it, you know, it's my whole life now. <laughs> but it actually is very simple if we can understand it that way. But it always has to do with this unremitting quality of sati. That when, when we don't remember, then we're not on the path. When we remember, the whole thing kicks into gear and there we are again. We're back in the Dhamma. So basically, you could say that all we have to do is uh, is to practice these skills to get them up to scratch so that every time we remember, we're back in the Dhamma. Now, here's the point. That period of time that you were not in the Dhamma, when you were forgetful, let us say when you were having an argument about Aunt Susie and that went into an email that you had to write to Aunt Susie about all of this argument, and then you said, well, I've got to write before I do that, I've got to write Uncle Joe about this before and see what he says, and so now I'm off into it, and you know how that goes. We'll go from one Duke of Point to the next, to the next, to the next. It doesn't matter how long that lasts. The question is, when you wake up, there you are again. I'm out of it now. Congratulate yourself. You've been in the desert. And now you've, you've remembered to come home. That's what we mean by the unremitting quality of it is, is that we don't just let it lapse. And a lot of students, when they start practicing meditation, they let it lapse. There's actually certain periods of time that they do that. And one of them is when they get successful. In fact, there's a, um, an interesting talk that I just had with um, Matt about uh, three, 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 four talks in a row about uh, getting ready to go on a personal week-long retreat, last-minute preparation. Then he goes on the retreat. He comes back high as a kite. Wow, is this wonderful. Next call keep going like that the next call he's back in misery again why because he let that high as a kite be the solution to the problem rather than just more of the same and keep practicing and keep practicing so that's one of the times when the students will actually quit practicing is when they become quite successful at it but if the main point is not to be successful at the practice, but rather to see dukkha, then we're going to be on guard. That's the whole point is to, to learn to be on guard for the dukkha so that it doesn't come back. Once we get ourselves into that state. Okay, so the, the first thing that we develop is the ability to come out of dukkha easily enough. It is fairly easy to do that. That's the first skill. Uh, we, and in fact, I'm, uh, uh, I'm mincing my words. Let me be clear so that everyone will understand. The practice is to come into first jhana easily. All we have to do is remember and take that deep breath. And we're back into it again. We develop it as a skill to come into it. The next skill is, how long is it going to last? That's what we look for. And so, 
that quick and easy way to get into it means that we can remember and we've got the skill to do it and then it comes in. What we don't talk about, which is where the Western mind gets worried, is, is that, oh no, I'm not talking about how well I was doing when I can remember. I'm talking about how bad it is because I don't like myself because I'm, I, you know, I fall back into misery again. All right. Um, in fact, that's another way of saying that we go kind of asleep to the dukkha, just like happened to Matt that after so much uh, practice and then he goes on a week-long retreat and gets such benefit out of it, then he thinks that he's arrived, he quits meditation, he gets miserable again, but now he is so asleep that he doesn't recognize that this misery that I'm in right now, I can come right back out of it. I did it before, I can do it again. And so, yes, that's, that's why sati is such an important skill to be developed. It's, so it, it becomes unremitting over and over. Yes, it was unremitting because he was developing it as a skill, but if we don't keep practicing it, then it, it will lapse. Um, this is an old story that I've known for many years. It's a story about Arthur Rubinstein, who was a very, very famous classical piano player back in the 70s. In fact, he was quite old by the 1970s. And uh, I remember one of the interviews, like 60 Minutes or something like that, was interviewing him. Uh, and they asked him, do you still practice the piano? Now, he's been a world star. He's been on stage. I mean, he's done one concerto after another in front of one um, uh, major philharmonic orchestra, one after another. And this... Um, uh, interviewer has the gall to ask him, do you still practice the piano? And his answer was so funny. He says, if I miss even one day of it, I'll notice it. And if I miss two days of practice, the housekeeper will notice it. And if I miss three days of practice, the dog will notice it. <laughs> And so this is how we have to think of or look at Anapanasati also, is we have to continue to practice because we know how beneficial it is and we know that if we don't, even the dog will notice it. When we don't, after three or four days, in Rubenstein's case, he knew after, after one day. Right. But a lot of us don't. It has to, we have to wait until we get so miserable again. I was so high from my meditation, and now I'm in such misery. Why? Because of sati, not wake, waking up. If we wake up often, then that sequence will, will continue on. It's kind of, sort of like riding a bicycle. Even if you go without riding a bicycle for a long time, when you get on that bicycle again, you don't have to do it the way that we did it as a child. We kind of learn how to ride a bicycle and then we can do it. But if the more often we remember to ride the bicycle, then the more substantial we become as a bicycle rider. Okay. So if you only ride the bicycle a little bit and then quit riding it, and when you come back to it, you're quite unstable again. But even if you've got a developed practice of meditation and you quit, 
it's easy to get back into it. All you have to do is remember. And so this is one of the ways that students fall out of it after after they get it. But generally, the reason that people fall uh, out of practice is because they're not getting good benefit from it right from the get go. That the Buddhist teaching is literally good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. Okay, so in that in the way that we're speaking now, good in the beginning is like the beginning meditator, like so say the first year or so. If he's not getting benefit and not getting good results from that, one of two things will happen. Either one, he'll get very ferocious with it. Or two, he will um, quit. Neither one of them are the right solution. We've got to get good benefit from it. And if we continue to get good benefit, then that will be the motivation for um, continuing on. But then we look at it like uh, with Matt in the middle of it all, when he's got a great big experience and he's had a great retreat and everything is hunky-dory and he likes it and then he quits practice. That's when it proves that all, we have to continue on. There will eventually come a time when the habit of sati is so ingrained that we just immediately wake up, that we don't let things go for very long. That we can see that in the process of of managing anger. In the very, very beginning, when someone is asleep, they're angry. Even a friend will say they're angry and says, I'm not angry. Complete denial, right? And then as we develop, we can begin to see, see, wait a minute, I don't like how I feel right now. This is anger and I'm really in it and I can recognize I don't want this. And everyone will have that. An example of it would be when the, uh, the husband and wife are, are fighting and yelling at each other. And then one of them will get to the point of saying, I've had enough of this. They slam the door and they walk out. We know that happened in last night's uh, or the night before's debate. When, when Biden finally just had enough of Donald Trump, you know, it's like, ah, I'm out of here. <laughs> and so did Chris Wallace. Let's take a break, you know. We're out of here. Got to go. All right. That's when we're deep into it. And we still wake up. I've, got, I've had enough of this. And, and so we leave. Later, as we begin to practice deeper and more and more, we begin to recognize uh before it goes too long let us say after three or four or five maybe six or seven exchanges wait a minute i've had enough of this it doesn't keep going on and on for 80 90 minutes um this is in fact one of the ways of looking at the soda pond when they say that you only take seven rebirths Think of that as uh, the soda pond will only come to like seven angry words and then he's finished. He's had enough of it already. Enough of this angry self. So then as we practice more and more, we get down to the point of I see the anger as it arises and comes up, but I don't let it out. This would then be the state of the anagami. 
to where he doesn't return to the anger. He doesn't express it. He doesn't put it out. He's able to keep it and manage it within. Now, that doesn't mean what they talk about uh, repressing anger or he's sitting there seething. No, he recognizes the anger and gets rid of it before it comes up to the point of yelling. This is what we mean by that, okay? But it still will come up. Right. And it's caught, okay? And then he takes a deep breath and, and throws it back out. Later, we will say, oh, that stuff used to make me angry. I remember how angry I used to get when that stuff would happen. And then finally, we notice it, but it doesn't even register. I used to get angry about that. It's like, oh, yeah, I, I've <laughs> been there, done that. No problem. Okay, so these are the various stages that we'll have uh, with relating to dukkha. So that um, it seems like uh, the unskilled, ordinary person will just let it go on and on and on and on and on. But the soda pine is the one who brings it to a stop fairly early with the intention of catching it even quicker and quicker and quicker to where it doesn't even uh, manifest. And then later, it doesn't even arise. And then later, we don't even remember that it arose. <laughs> just forget about it completely, right? And so this is the way that we see as part of the uh, of the process that um, comes from the original intention of seeing the dukkha and getting rid of it. And that sati is that point. Okay. Where does the sati arise? Does it arise after an hour of <laughs> conversation with Donald Trump? Does it arise... Um, uh, after a couple of exchanges, does it arise with the first word? Sati. Does it arise when the feeling arises so that the feeling doesn't even get an expression of one loud word? Yeah, I, I've noticed that. Sati? I've noticed that a difference in myself and how often it arises. I mean, so that's good progress, I guess. <laughs> Duca, the other dog is over there barking, and Lucky under my feet is about to go check it out, and I've got her, <laughs> put Wait, her in the jail. Dog's name is Duca? <laughs> you hear the dog barking? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Lucky wants to take off and go over there and get involved, and I won't let her go. I've got her <laughs> right here. <laughs> I captured her with my legs before when she started to get up. So anyway, that took my mind away just for a second. Um, anyway, go back and ask your question again. Um, it was just saying that I, I've noticed that, so I, something I used that used to happen to me a couple months ago was that I would kind of go about th my work days and a lot of dukkha and then oh, every night, it was always at night, I would, I would kind of like, sit down to meditate and then I would, that's when I would kind of come out of it but I've noticed now that it's like you know much more often maybe I'll have like an hour just like 
it's, instead of it being like a whole day spent in Duke, it's more just like minutes at a time or maybe a few hours, maybe a day here and there. But like, I, I'm noticing progress on that front. All right. So this means that you're about to stage of taking your practice off the cushion and into life. Now, this is a stage that I generally call performance. It's kind of like uh, the child doing a recital, their first or second recital, right? They've been practicing, practicing, practicing for this, but now they're on stage. Now the spotlight, okay? Well, that's the kind of the way that we are all day long in the world, that we're on stage or we've got to perform, etc. But... Um, Really, what we need to learn to perform is that which we have been practicing. And so we need to start bringing the shati throughout the day. One of the jokes to say is, is that, oh, you've been meditating once a day, every day for, you know, an hour, every day. Day after day, month after month, maybe year after year. That means that you've got one hour of uh, sati and 23 hours of hindrance. Is that it? <laughs> right. Which is going to win that contest? The old established hindrance that gets most of the airtime or this little budding sati? The hindrances. Right. The hindrances win every time. We need to start developing a practice so that we can um, use mindfulness throughout the day. And there are a lot of tricks to do that. The Satipatthana Sutta has some, uh, some mindfulness tricks. This okay. is, by the way, what walking meditation is really all about. Is that whenever you're walking around, but in the time of the Buddha, they were barefoot, which meant that they had to watch where they were going. A lot of monks do also. Many monks uh, uh, will walk around the temple, but they'll only put on shoes. Very rarely, because even when they're going on Bendabat, when they go out, that's the main time that they go out of the temple. And so they spend a lot of the time barefoot. Here, I'm not allowed to go to town barefoot. I've got to wear shoes. And so I wear shoes about once a month. <laughs> I go one hour. Okay. See you one hour. Uh, so um, if you're barefoot, you got to watch where you're going. That's mindfulness. Got to watch where you're going. And in that sense, that means we have to watch what we're thinking. Yeah. So it's the same thing. All right. So what we want to do then is we want to find techniques throughout the day that are going to bring up uh, and focus our awareness throughout the day. We can do that both formally and informally. Some of the informal things is begin to notice the hands, to watch the hands, because the hands actually uh, is that which does most of the physical grasping and clinging. Mm. What is it that we're reaching for? Why are we reaching? When I set something down, do I remember to watch that I'm setting it down so I'll know where it is later? Because normally people, uh, a really clear example of that is the guy uh, hears his cell phone ringing or, or worse still, he's unlocking his door 
and he's got to go to the bathroom. And on the way to the bathroom, he sets his keys down. But after the bathroom, and he, and he goes about his life, and now he's got to go to the car. Where's his keys? Well, if we're mindful, we don't lose the keys. Unless the keys get lost in the couch, and we, we're not aware of that. I mean, there's things that do happen. But generally, when we're mindful of what we're doing with our hands, there's a good meditation practice throughout the day. Grasping and reaching primarily. Well, other Julian is calling. I'm going to go ahead and let him in on this part of the call. Yes, hello, Julian. How are you? Hey, man. Nice to see you again. Hey, Julian. How are you? Pretty good. That's unusual. Two guys, two calls in a row, calling at the same time. Both named Julian. We planned it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think Young would call um, that a synchronicity or something like that. <laughs> exactly. Yes. All right. So we're, we're actually talking about today bringing sati into um, one's daily practice throughout okay. the day. Okay. And that the number one thing that we're going to work on for the rest of this talk is what are we doing with our hands as a form of waking up. Okay. That I just said that most of the mental grasping and clinging that is done manifest itself with what we do with our hands. And so we begin to uh, practice in a daily practice by saying, all right, I'm going to start doing Anapanasati whenever I remember to. Okay. And um, uh, that's just a good rule of thumb. But there are some of these techniques that we're going to use. It's going to help us as kind of a memory jog to help us to kind of remember. Like, for instance, the child is trying to think of a word that the teacher knows what it is, and if the teacher gives the student the first letter of the word, it'll help him to remember the whole word. Right? Yeah. And so this is what we're beginning to practice is that we're going to take the, the practice of, of Anapanasati off the cushion and into regular life. Now, um, when we were practicing on the cushion, we had the anchor of the breathing. When we're off the cushion, we're going to have a new anchor, and that anchor is our hands. Still part of the body, but what our hands are doing. And a a most important one would be uh, that if your hands are going to touch your face, you should do that consciously. Okay, we're not saying you cannot ever touch your face. We're saying that you're not going to absently minded touch your face. That was, by the way, quite uh, conscious, but I did it as if it were unconscious just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. Okay. Uh, That you begin to make all of your hand movements, especially those associated with the face, very consciously. There's one right there. Uh, (laughs) Ah, 
Okay. That was actually unconscious. It was unconscious. You're right. Yes. And so we're now going to start bringing all of the hand movements up to a level of consciousness. And one of the ways of doing that is by each individual. And I'm, I'm not giving you this rule. I'm giving it an example that we will say, all right, I'm not going to touch the face, which means that if I do touch the face, that is going to be an anchor for me to wake up. Okay. Also, there's another one, and I'll uh, use this as an example. You can see this thing floating in my hand there now. And so imagine that that's on a table. What we're going to do is we're not just going to go get it the way that we do things ordinarily, unconsciously. We're actually now going to do things very specifically and watch the way that I'm putting this thing back down. Okay. When we're going to touch things, um, here's... Let me say it this way. In the old Dracula movies, just as Nosferatu or Dracula is just about to get that bite into the neck, you can see the hands move like that. Okay, it's a gesture. Begin to develop that gesture for yourself, that you open your hands wide, and then when you touch something, what's the first touch? What's the very th first thing that you touch with your hands? You're going to touch perhaps with the thumb or perhaps with this finger. But notice, whenever you're grasping something, that you're going to curl your fingers around something and you're going to notice each of the fingers and what they're doing. When you pick something up and move it, you're going to start moving slowly. So the whole idea is to slow down and start paying attention to the sensations and the touch and what the hands are doing. There's actually a Pali word for this, it's well known, it's called mudra. Mu is the word for hand. Mudras means, uh, they, they say it means hand posture, and that's what it means. Mudra is how you're drawing or moving your hands. And there's many of them that have particular meanings. One of them is what they call touch the earth which is when the, the palm of the right hand is laying over your knee and that you can then use this index finger or the, excuse me, the long finger to touch the earth. If you get to a state where you think that you're floating or flying in the air, then this touch the earth with that index or with that middle finger is the way of the Buddha so that you don't have to open his eyes or come out of that state but just to remember that we are, in fact, solid. We are under the influence of gravity. Here we are. That we, This feeling of floating in the air or growing to be 60 feet tall is just a sensational delusion. Okay, so that's one of them. Another one is when the hand is out like this. You've seen many statues with this palm uh, hand stretched forth. The idea is, is that energy is coming out of the palm of the hand. So the place that we put our awareness or attention is right there on the palm of the hand. Like as if you were radiating loving kindness or something. And allow that the palm to get very warm. Think of it as hot hands. That this is a, uh, there's also healing in that, in the sense of laying on of the hands, but the hands ha that are to be laid on you have to be completely focused on those hands. 
by the focusing of the mind, you're actually going to bring more blood into the hands, more energy into the hands. And so this is why they call it hot hands or the warming of the hands, because we're paying so much close attention to them. Mm -hmm. Then there is this one. You've probably seen this one, too. Mm -hmm. All right. The important point is right here between the fingers and the thumb, between the finger and the thumb. When they touch, which do touch, which do you sensate first? Do you are you aware that the thumb is touching and feeling the finger, or are you aware that the finger is feeling and touching the thumb? Or does it happen together and it's difficult to discern? Then we have the other one, which is very similar to this, and that's when the hands are folded together, but we're playing this way with the thumbs themselves. How close can you get them and still have separation that they feel each other? This is a way of expanding your sensory input. In other words, the thumbs don't actually have to touch for you to begin to notice that they're getting close enough that you can sense each, the other thumb. This is when you're done um, with your eyes closed. So you're not actually, I'm, I'm doing this demonstration so you can watch it here. But when you're practicing, you're just, and you don't have to be sitting in meditation. You can be doing this at your desk and just close your eyes and start playing with your thumbs, touching each other. Oh, it begins to feel really good, really marvelous. <laughs> All right, to start to, to work with your hands, to, to allow your mind to be in your hands as much of the day as you're using your hands so that you become fully aware of what your hands are doing. Rat, grasping, reaching, stretching, wiping, uh, writing, whatever your hands are doing. For instance, if you're writing with a pen, then get the feel of the pen. Really get in contact with that pen. All of the sensations and all of the various parts of the hand that are touching that that uh, pen. And so you begin to uh, go into a sensory awareness. Make the hands that become completely alive by practicing this. And we can do this throughout the day, basically at any time. Now, this is an informal practice. Uh, Junin, the next time that you call, we will go into uh, a more formal kind of practice that has different anchors. But today I'm giving you this first anchor to start to become aware of your hands. Okay. Okay. And begin to enjoy them. Now, if you don't mind, um, uh, Julian Dark, have we covered your questions? We have, yeah. So far. Okay. So I'd like to uh, uh, change frame of reference now and talk to the other Julian. Uh, do you want to stay on the line or do you want to quit? Uh, I think that's it for me. It's getting kind of late. All right. So let's do this then. Let's uh, 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 shut this... Um, uh, video down and we'll start it up again. Okay, so hang on a second and we'll finish that. So, as you're leaving now, I salute you and congratulate yes. you again. And I feel my hands. May things become you. very handy for you. Okay, thank you. <laughs> All right, bye guys. <clears throat>